1 to 9. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See the former things I have see the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being I announce them to you. So I I too would like to uh, extend a warm welcome to you all this morning. I want us to spend a few moments thinking about servanthood. And we read those few verses from uh, the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 42. But did you know that that is actually the climax of Isaiah? That particular point, we see a huge change in the message. The thrust of Isaiah changes at chapter 42. And uh, what we have here is what are popularly known as the first of the servant songs. And uh, our servant song is just actually the first four verses that we read there in chapter 42. And uh, it was a term that was developed by uh, this gentleman here, Bernard Doom, who analysed Isaiah and he decided that there were four servant songs. And it sort of makes sense when you look through that. Although there's no real evidence that they were actually sung, but they are known uh, popularly as the servant songs. And this is the first of those four servant songs that we're looking at. But in order to understand why I'm saying this is a climax, we need to understand the context of what has gone on before. And if we look uh, just briefly into chapter 41, uh, then we begin to see what has been happening Because here we read about God's great objection to the growing worship of and reliance upon idols. And these are the words that God speaks through Isaiah. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Bring in your idols, To tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. 
or declare to us what the future holds so that we may know you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. This is God speaking to his people, his wayward people who have latched onto idols. And it's God himself who lays down this challenge to those who have put their trust in idols. And we know that an accepted test of whether a god was a god or not was whether they could predict the future. So logically, if idols really are gods, they should know what the future holds, shouldn't they? God asks, declare to us what the future holds so that we may know you are gods. And we can almost experience the hushed silence as those words were read. And God doesn't give up there. He says, well, okay, if you can't predict the future, at least do something, whether it's good or bad, so that we may be dismayed and filled with fear. But God concludes then in verse 24, but you are less than nothing and your works are utterly worthless. He who chooses you is detestable. And God's closing verdict is simply that all idols are completely useless and utterly false. And he says this, I look, but there is no one, no one among them to give counsel, no one to give answers when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. That is the background and the context of this passage that we read in chapter 42, which is the first of the servant songs in Isaiah. So at this point here at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 42, God completely changes tack and makes the astonishing announcement, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Now, unfortunately, our NIV translation has lost some of the emphasis that is in this opening statement that God makes. Here is my servant should rather be behold, look at, see, and with significant emphasis added for good measure. The idol gods and those who rely on them have been exposed for exactly what they are, or perhaps more tellingly, exposed for exactly what they are not. And now God introduces, with a great fanfare, his remedy for the plight of the whole world. That's why this is a climax in Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. And this is God's initiative because it's God's chosen one in whom God himself delights. What a climax, what excitement to those who perhaps read that for the first time. What a truly wonderful 
revelation. What joy for a world lost in sin. And notice here that God reveals not any servant, but he reveals his chosen one. A servant who will be preeminent. A servant the likes of whom has never been seen before. And God tells us that he will uphold this servant. And that word uphold means to grip tightly. The work of the servant and God's divine sovereignty are intimately interwoven and held together by God's tight grip. This servant alone will be the one and the only one who will embody true servanthood. And that is our theme today. So let us look a little deeper into what God is declaring to us through Isaiah. So this servant is God's servant. Now sometimes we pay for a service and maybe we could regard those people that we pay as as, as servants uh, in all the things that we do. And uh, when we pay for a service, we we may choose someone who we may not necessarily know or even like. Um, You know, we we employ a solicitor to help us buy a house. Uh, We may not necessarily get on with them, but they will eventually do the job. And I apologize if anyone's a solicitor. I wasn't meaning to. I was just, it was just, just a, a, a I really hope there's no solicitors here, but that's just an example. Uh, you know, sometimes if you, if you buy insurance on the phone, because we have to have insurance for so many things these days, you end up being passed from pillar to post and you always end up with a chap called Bob. Um, but Bob does his job and we end up with the insurance policy. However, God here is very choosy about who his servant will be. Indeed, we read that God's servant is his chosen servant, the only one that will do, the Lord's exclusive man for the job. And verse 1 continues, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And he will bring justice to the nations. So we learn that the Lord will put his spirit on this servant. God will ensure his personal presence and action in perfect harmony with the servant through his spirit. And notice then that one of the key tasks of the servant is about justice. And we will see three statements about justice as we work our way through these first four verses of this servant song. But firstly, we are told that the servant will bring justice to the nations. And that's all about making God's truth, and indeed the truth about God himself, it's all about making that known in a world which is essentially lost. You see, the emphasis here is not on a world that will seek the truth and progressively find it, but rather upon a world that has shown itself time and time again to be incapable of finding the truth for themselves. Their best shot is to invest in idols, which, as we saw, were revealed by God to be useless, 
and utterly false. Now the only way to bring truth and justice into the world is by having it brought to them by a revealing agent. God's agent who will bring justice and truth into the world is indeed this person who is God's chosen servant in whom he delights. But as we read on, we begin to learn a little bit more about the nature of this servant and how his servanthood will be realised. And it's quite shocking. For we read in verse 2, He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. So the approach of this servant will be gentle. He will not shout. The approach of this servant will not be domineering. He will not cry out. The approach of this servant will not be self-advertising. He will not raise his voice in the streets. And as we read this description of this wonderful servant who is God's chosen one, we see a surprising contrast in God's approach to the servant compared to the worldly behaviour of those who really should be our servants. We move on to verse 3. I apologise for the distasteful pictures I've had to put up here. Verse 3 tells us a little bit more. It tells us a bruised reed he will not break. And a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. You see, to this servant, no one is ever considered useless. A bruised reed in worldly terms is utterly valueless because it's already crushed. It cannot be used to achieve anything useful and a crushed reed is already lost amongst the other reeds which are numerous anyway. And the point is this, God's servant does not look upon the bruised reeds of this world in a worldly way. And we only have to look more closely where we live to know we are surrounded by bruised reeds. We don't need to walk the streets of London to find the homeless, to find the drug dependents or the rejected of society. They live amongst us here in this area where we live. To God's servants, such such bruised reeds are valuable. Indeed, such Bruised reeds are his very work. And similarly, the smouldering wick is not beyond rescue. For the servant of the Lord, the smouldering wick, close to extinction, has not gone too far. The servant of the Lord will not give up on anyone, even if their faith has almost extinguished. To God's servant, such smouldering wicks are valuable. Indeed, such smouldering wicks are his work. And so the servant will bring forth justice with faithfulness. 
He will execute his work amongst the broken reeds and the smoldering wicks of this world with faithfulness so that they too will be in full receipt of the justice that God has promised to deliver to the nations. We read on in verse 4. This servant, this chosen one, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. And we have another clue then that God's servant himself will be subject to the pressures of this world and this life. Yet he will not falter nor be discouraged. Indeed, the servant described here will not be immune from suffering. And suffering is something that is particularly emphasized in the fourth and the last servant song. The servant will not be overcome by such trials. Indeed, the goal of his servanthood will be delivered without faltering or yielding even to being discouraged. And how often we feel discouraged when we try to do things for the Lord. The servant here will not be discouraged. And in fulfilling his mission, he will bring justice on earth. And what's more, the law that he brings will be the very hope of even the remotest of islands. You see, up to now, in the history of the world, it was the privileged few, God's chosen people, Israel, who had received that hope. But from this point onwards, and this is the climax of Isaiah, in the future... It will be God's servant who will bring hope to all by making God's truth known. Well, we might ask ourselves, who is this servant? We may actually be as bold as to try and identify this servant of the Lord. But you know, it's easy for you and me. We have the great privilege of hindsight and insight We're God's people in the gospel age. And you should really thank God for that. It's amazing that we know what we know. And that's because the Lord has revealed himself fully in this gospel age. So who is the servant of the Lord with these amazing credentials? If we read a few verses from Matthew's gospel, the answer is given to us. And uh, this is speaking about Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And here we have those opening words of Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1. Here is my servant whom I have chosen. The one I love, in whom I delight. Now I suspect you'd already worked that out for yourselves. But here we have it in Matthew's Gospel. We see the actual fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And specifically, we're drawn, our attention is focused upon that opening verse of Isaiah chapter 42. 
And here we see the servant of the Lord in action, in all his fullness. The one who we know as our Lord and Saviour. Jesus Christ himself is the intended one sent by God to be the perfect and wonderful servant of the Lord. But back in Isaiah so far, the Lord has revealed the worldwide task of his servant and has pledged its outcome through the servant who will deliver. And yet we may pick up even further points which I think are very helpful to us as we read a few more of the verses, strictly past those four initial verses which are known as the servant song, but there's a bit more information beyond. For example, it's particularly important to notice how God reminds his readers that he alone, God alone, is the giver and the sustainer of life because he is the creator God of the universe. And this is what God says in verse 5 of Isaiah 42. And he speaks here of himself. He says, He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. You see, the whole universe depends on its creator. It depends also not just on the creation itself, but the maintenance of that creation. And here we are reminded by God himself of his sovereign power. And that sovereign power is there as a big vigil aid for us when we look at creation itself. And we see the continued existence of creation. We've seen the snowdrops come up, the daffodils have arrived. God is fully in control. And this is the power behind the servant that God speaks of in Isaiah. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. And this should give great confidence in the servant's work since it is underpinned by God's almighty power as demonstrated in the very creation itself. A little bit more and we see That God says this, I the Lord have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. It is so clear when we read this that it is the Lord who called his servant in righteousness for the work he has to do. But the Lord will not call his servant and then leave him to fend for himself. Far from it. God will accompany this servant. I will take hold of your hand, he says. God will safeguard the servant. I will keep you, he says. God will use his power, his sovereign power, to facilitate the servant's work. I will make you a covenant for the people, he says. And God can do all of this because he is the sovereign creator God of the universe. And notice that reference to the covenant. It's particularly special since it is the new covenant 
through which each one of us has become a child of God, redeemed through the precious blood of the servant, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The servant will bring light to the Gentiles, up to, who up to now have had no real understanding of God, their creator. And he will set free the captives of this world and release those who are bound by their dungeon of sin. It's truly amazing. It's completely wonderful stuff, isn't it? It's just fantastic. It's, it's great. So I'd ask you, are you sitting comfortably? Well, you shouldn't be. <laughs> because I cannot leave this morning without telling you about the challenge that's here. And that challenge is for every one of us. For a further element to this passage in Isaiah is that this wonderful and deep description of the servant of the Lord is actually a template for you and for me. We have been introduced to the quintessential servant and his quintessential service. All this prophesied through Isaiah, but exemplified perfectly in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was confirmed for us in that short section from Matthew's Gospel. These qualities of the servant of the Lord are to be reproduced by all who would want to serve the Lord and who would want to serve the Lord with true service, not the service that this world demands. So this message from Isaiah 42, if you like, for us is the very blueprint of servanthood. So whatever we are called to do for the Lord as his servants, we do through copying the way of our Lord as the one perfect servant. Our approach as a servant will be gentle. We will not shout about the things we do. Our approach as a servant will not be domineering. We will not cry out and say, look at me. Our approach as a servant will not be self-advertising. We will not raise our voice in the streets, except, of course, to bring praise to the Lord Jesus. And we need to look through the eyes of Jesus to value those who the world considers to be valueless. And I put together a few images which brought tears to my eyes, but these are the bruised reeds of our world. To God's servant, bruised reeds are valuable. Indeed, such bruised reeds are our work. To God's servant, smouldering wicks are valuable. Indeed, such smouldering wicks are our work. And as a servant of God, we bring forth God's justice with faithfulness. But do be encouraged. Don't feel daunted. For just as the servant of the Lord was not left to fend for himself, then neither shall we. For God said, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice 
to the nations. And be assured, as God's servant in this world today, God will do the same for you and me. He will put his spirit on you and me so that we may be effective in our servanthood as we seek, as God's people, to help grow God's kingdom here on earth. And remember too, God was most emphatic to let us know and be reminded of his sovereign nature. Our God is the sovereign God of creation and his power will support all that he asks us to do. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you. So that is servanthood in a nutshell. So are we encouraged that God is with us in all that he expects us to do and achieve? We so often say we do things not in our own strength, but in God's strength. Do we believe that? Even more, do we put it into practice? I truly hope so. And may God therefore bless each one of us as we look to Jesus the servant of whom God proclaimed, he is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. And let's emulate his perfect and true servanthood, not in our own strength, but in the strength that the Lord gives us and through his spirit, because we can be sure of the promise of God's spirit within us. Amen.